0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and pick up at verse 23. But I'm going to go back and start in verse 20. We'll read 20 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, Faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would, that you would uh, give us your wisdom, which is full, and your light, which is full, Father, mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit and the true understanding of your word. Give us grace to receive it with true fear and humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, I've been accused of being unkind before. I've been accused of being divisive before in, in the way especially that I write and um, the way that I write about troubling elements in the church. If you write for war horn media, which has been critical of many elements of the Reformed and Evangelical Church in America, you're, you are immediately, almost before you hit publish, Labeled at best an unhelpful and unkind voice or at worst a schismatic in the church. All of those things have been said about me and my writings and the writings of others. To oppose anything vigorously in the church today almost always comes with the accusation that it is not so much your content that is wrong, but your tone of voice that is harsh or arrogant. I don't know how many conversations I've had on social media and in person and over the phone where the, the topic of the conversation degenerates into talking about rhetoric rather than about the issues. It happens time and time and time again. And honestly, um, I think about the things that I say before I say them. I generally think about the things I say before I say them unless my kids are annoying me and then, then usually I sin with my mouth and have to repent. right? But, but when I'm writing or when I'm preaching or when I'm speaking to somebody, I have a tendency to think about what I'm saying. And um, <clears throat> I honestly do that and think about that, trying to remember these verses that we've just heard, right? But let's review some of the times in Scripture that the Apostle Paul, the author of this passage, uses, and those writings being inspired by the Holy Spirit, we should understand that they do not contradict what is written here by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. Just a few sentences before our passage, you remember the Apostle Paul names a few men in the church of Ephesus who are who are spreading false teaching. He's not generic, right? He, he names their names. He is not mealy-mouthed. He condemns their sinful actions quite clearly. He says, this is verse 16 of the same chapter, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Has Paul and the Holy Spirit just broken their very own rule? Is this an example of being unkind, of lacking gentleness when correcting someone who is in opposition? I mean he says that they're ungodly he says their talk is going to spread like gangrene and that they're leading somebody out of many out of the faith and he records their names he doesn't just say there are some he says Hymenaeus and Philetus here's another example 2 Timothy 1:15 you are aware of the fact that all who were all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Fugilus and Hermogenes. Again, Paul, naming names as he talks about those who turned away from him. Or further ahead in the book of Second Timothy, this very personal rebuke make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Pretty harsh. For him to report that to a church that this man has departed from. That's out of order today. You would not name that name uh, to a church in a church report. Or, turning to the book of Galatians, we read these inspired words of Paul regarding another apostle. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The apostle Peter stood condemned seems like a harsh judgment by a a, an adopted sort of apostle for prior to the coming of certain men from james he used to eat with the gentiles but when they came he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision the rest of the jews joined him in, in 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 hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Jews to, the Gentiles to live like Jews? There's Paul not just getting in Cephas' face, Peter's face, when everybody's present, which, you know, he should have maybe taken him aside, and talk to him first. But, but here's him writing now to the church in Galatia about what happened. Is this gossip? Is it harsh? Again, it's unbecoming for Paul to say that another apostle stood condemned. Um, is it right for him to spread the news of the apostle Peter's sins? Of course of course it's right the writer of the gospels has had done the same thing is you know about the apostle peter and his his turning away from the lord is there not a larger purpose for paul's writing about peter's sin is there a larger purpose than just peter yes the whole theme of the letter the whole theme of the letter it, it hinges on correcting peter's error Right, and it, and it lends credence to the weight of the matter if even the Apostle Peter could go astray on the understanding of Jews and Gentiles. Further, in the letter to the Galatian church, the Apostle Paul strongly rebukes the whole church with these words. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it? By the works of the law or by hearing with faith. And what we find out is the people of Galatia are none too happy with Paul. They're not very happy with him. Later he writes, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I become your enemy by just telling you the truth? Right? And his greatest invective is written in that letter to false teachers in the church. He writes this, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. The whole topic is circumcision. He essentially says, I wish that they would cut the whole thing off. Mutilate their bodies. Harsh language, unkind, not looking for their repentance. Is this an example of the Apostle Paul breaking his own words in 2 Timothy? And I haven't even gotten to the letter of Corinth the two letters to the Church in Corinth, or all of Paul's other letters, uh, where where there are what we would consider harsh rebukes, naming of names, even intentionally emotional appeals. Right, is the Apostle Paul then a quarrelsome man? Every place he went, he argued. Right, He argued with the Jews every place he went, and he got kicked out of their synagogues, often running for his life every place he went. And what about our Savior? What about our Savior, Jesus? Always the perfect p- pattern for every behavior. Did he use invective? And invective is a great word. Do you know what the word invective means? It's insulting, highly critical language. Insulting. Did he use invective? Did he name names? Did he rebuke harshly those who claim to be part of the church? Of course. Here's just a taste, and I'm not going to even read the whole passage because you'll be overwhelmed with it. Matthew 23, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and their chief sheets chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So, what gives here? How can Scripture say the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition? if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And yet, there are plenty of examples where this approach is seemingly abandoned. Well, I'll say right off the bat that the Holy Spirit did not contradict himself within a few sentences in 2 Timothy. What our Savior and what the Apostle Paul demonstrates to us is the keeping of this passage, right? The intent of the rebuke, the intent of the harsh language, the, the naming of names, the calling out of sins publicly, particularly as a response to public error, is the fulfillment of this passage. It's the fulfillment of this passage. Here are a few points in light of that. First, God's servants as this passage says, must not be quarrelsome. A quarrelsome man is not a man that fights some of the time. He's a man that fights all the time. He is a disagreeable man or woman. right? He is a contrarian. He is the kind of person that will have firm opinions not just about about eschatology, but about deodorant. Right? He, he will fight to the death over the best brand of shoe. He will also switch opinions whenever anybody expresses a firm opinion about anything, just because he's contrarian. One day, he'll contradict you one, one way, and the next day, he'll contradict you the opposite way. He lives to quarrel. Now, Chesterton said this, and this is very helpful. People generally quarrel because they cannot argue. Do you get that? People quarrel because they can't argue, right? That that makes an important point. There's a difference between quarreling, which is to make everything personal and a matter to dismiss, and arguing, which is the use of reason and truth to fight for what is right, right? Paul and Jesus argue, but they do not quarrel. They argue, but do not quarrel. If they quarreled, Jesus would have said to the Pharisees, you know, you get, you get many things right, and who am I to judge, but, but here's one thing I just can't let you get away with. Perhaps. To quarrel is to have no arguments and to have no zeal for the truth. It is merely to be contrarian. To quarrel is to be, um, is to like to fight, but to fight without a goal, to fight without a purpose. Right? Is that what the Apostle Paul and our Savior are doing when they use harsh language? Are they just being quarrelsome, or are they? Are they just quarreling with the Pharisees? No, they are rebuking those who are leading God's people astray for the purpose of exposing error, for defining God's truth, and putting all on warning. Second, the apostle says that God's servants are to be kind to all. Was Jesus being kind to the Pharisees when he called them twice the sons of hell? Was Paul being kind and gentle to the brethren in Ephesus and Galatia? Consider what the Apostle Paul used to do to those who were his opponents. Now think of this. What did the Apostle Paul used to do to his opponents? Well, he says in Acts 26 this, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons having received authority from the chief priests. But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Now that's how the Apostle Paul used to respond to his opponents. That that is much more than the use of rebuke, isn't it? Locking them up in prison. Casting a vote that they might die. Forcing them to blaspheme. Right? And now, this is a ridiculous example. But consider the Romans. Consider the Romans, how the Romans dealt with their opponents. Right? They'd conquer a people, enslave them, and sodomize them. In order to show their dominance over them. Right? Does... Does that not help us to uh, understand what it means to be gentle? Restraining ourselves to the use of words is gentleness. That is gentleness. right? Refusing to take up the sword that belongs to the state is gentleness. Bringing charges within the church through a properly organized court is gentleness. Right, warning the sheep of false teachers in their midst with clear, resounding words is gentleness and meekness. Right? What is what is particularly important is that words words must be true. Right? What Jesus said and what Paul said to their opponents was true. Right, And so we must always make arguments that are true, but that does not in any way call us to make arguments that are mealy-mouthed and confusing and effeminate and unclear and so made palatable to modern sensibilities. Our words must be true. Have you read the works of Calvin? Have you read the works of Luther? Have you read the works of Knox, godless, or an example for us in their use of words? Uh, do they come strongly against their opponents, calling them names as Jesus did with the Pharisees? Yes. Were they quarrelsome men? No. Were they trying? Were they zealous arguers for the truth? We would say the latter, and we would say that their words indicate the depth of the wickedness of their opponents that's what it indicates their use of harsh language indicates the wickedness of their opponents in fact they were men who were able to teach they didn't take to invective because they enjoyed a good fight they took to it because they wanted to teach they were desperate to teach they wanted to warn right they wanted to instruct in god's in god's truth if that is not our motive if if we don't want to use Language to, to glorify God. If that's not our motive, we should just shut our mouths. Right? But if our motive is to be nice to our opponents, we don't care about the truth. Because inevitably we'll have to lie about the destructive work of our opponents in order to retain the dialogue. Three. Three. Were Paul and Jesus and other prophets in Scripture impatient when wronged? Did they resort to name-calling just because they wanted to get a dig into somebody who had insulted them? Right? Was, was um, Was what they did motivated by pride or revenge? Was it something along those lines? And I say, of course not. Of course not. Jesus prayed on the cross for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. Paul, who ran from every synagogue, often with his life on the line, expressed that he wished himself accursed for the sake of his brethren, the Jews. He'd rather be damned than see them damned. And yet here he is running out of synagogues while they're trying to kill him. There's very little pride here in Jesus. There was absolutely none. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to humble himself. He severely regretted his former manner of life in persecuting the church. And yet, here, they are using harsh rebukes. The point that must be made is that correction, rebukes, warnings are not an indication of impatience when wronged. Right? They could be, but today everyone thinks they are by necessity. Well, what do you have against me personally, Pastor? Nothing. I want you to be godly. That's what I want. God knows that I have had to repent of my pride and my desire for revenge against those who oppose me. We all struggle with that. We all have been in bondage to that. I have had to repent of that at times. God knows that. But there are other times when it would be wrong of me To repent for opposing those who wrong God and disparage his word. It would be sin to repent. We don't need any... We don't need any more false humility in the church. Right? False humility is disgusting. Right? False humility allows wolves to flourish in the church. It gives the benefit of the doubt to those who have proven their evil motives... And lack of knowledge. It shoots for collegiality with those who hate God's truth. This And that is a scourge on the church today, is it not? False humility refuses zeal in the right direction. Humility, real humility on the other hand, fights because a humble man refuses to dishonor God. Refuses to dishonor God. His, his conscience is held captive by God's word. A falsely humble man appears collegial and nice, but really just puts the fear of men on a level with the fear of God. And when false accusations return against you, that is when we're called to be patient, right? When false accusations come at you, that's when we're called to be patient. That's an example we have in our Savior, that is the example we have in Paul. Paul writes, when we are reviled, we bless. Right? When we are insulted, we shake our heads and admit our own sinfulness. Right? We, we take hits in the heat of battle unless, unless it's damaging slander said behind our backs that must be opposed for the sake of the church and truth. Fourth, notice that those who are to be corrected with gentleness, and we've defined what that means and what that does not mean, are later described as those who have been held captive by the devil to do his will. They are doing the will of Satan, right? As the Apostle Peter was doing when he took up the sword, right? I I think we have a tendency to to downplay the wickedness of opponents of the gospel and false teachers. We downplay it right we think perhaps they're merely intellectually misguided or that they they haven't gone to the right seminary if only he had been trained at westminster and not covenant right or or that they are <coughs> that false teachers are likely to do minimal damage at the most right i mean those pushing the gay christian movement are they're often calvinists they're often reformed men I mean so no. No. Those who enter churches to mislead the flock are doing nothing less than the will of the devil. The will of Satan. They are seeking to devour the sheep. They are men of they are the men described in the book of Jude. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. In all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, fault finders, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's what false teachers do. Is that, meh, not so bad? That last statement, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage may more properly describe the celebrity Christian culture we live in than any other passage of Scripture. Flattering one another for the sake of gaining another book deal. This influence in the church is devilish. There is no other way to describe it. For the sake of recognition, many men will abandon the battle against false teachers. For the sake of ascending up the ladder of pay and congregational size, many men will leave off opposing wrong because if they did so, they wouldn't ascend, right? And so they take on a more positive style of ministry. And not a single man is immune to the temptation to do that. Not a single one of us. Right? And to give into it is to the sickness of our congregations and our church. Is that not the whole point of these letters to Timothy? Be faithful to God. Fifth, notice that it is correcting. Notice that the Apostle Paul uses the word correcting. Not dialogue, not safe places, but correcting that may lead to those who are wrong and may lead them to repentance. Brothers and sisters, do not harden yourself against correction. Right, Be correctable. If you don't, you will end up in a church where your sins are not addressed, right? And your souls are just left alone. God laments his people's unwillingness to be corrected with these words in Jeremiah. He says, "Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Don't, don't become incorrigible. Ten. Finally, ten. It's not ten. I couldn't possibly have that many points. Finally, notice that those who are corrected are those who have lost their senses or become drunk with some source outside of the Spirit and the Word. Their repentance is described as coming to their senses or becoming sober. There is a way in which error, it can benumb us, right? We can become numb when we, when we exist in a when we exist in a habitual sin, or we exist in a particular error, we can be, become so consumed with that one error that it becomes the the uh, rose colored glasses through which we gaze on everything in our life. We just become, we stumble through. Um, it, it, it's sin is like drug addiction that that it pervades. Right. I remember one time I came to my senses. It had to do with, an, with understanding what God meant for me as a man. I had not lived as a man. I had not joyfully taken on responsibility. I had lived an essentially emotive life in the arts. I remember waking up one morning ready to obey God as a man. And it was as if I just sobered up. I came to my senses. It was a work of the Spirit. It was, um, I mean, it, it is like for years I had been walking in a daze, and, uh, and once the hangover was over, I saw with clarity what my task was. All repentance is like that. right? All repentance is like that. We get caught up in the snare of the devil. We get intoxicated by our errors. And we lose our ability then to discern sin. And by God's grace and then kindness, he grants to us repentance that changes everything. You know, it, cha- it, it, it changes, it, we go from seeing black and white to seeing color. And so, may God grant us to know such repentance. May God grant us to know that kind of repentance. May God use us, then, to be zealous for his name and to be kind, to be patient, to be gentle, to be humble... And to do all of that to correct those who oppose God's truth. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Father, we pray that we would live this passage. Pray that we would not misunderstand this passage. And take it as for what it, what it doesn't mean. I pray that it would not be an antidote to zeal but that it would be the very expression of zeal that we should have in order to honor you. Father, work in us. Grant to us repentance for our cowardice, for the times when our, our, we've been harsh and impatient, for the times when we've been silent and should have spoke, for the times we spoke and should have been silent. Lord, may we honor your son, Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.